Welcome to the Musician's Venture Podcast. This is a podcast focused on lessons learned from musicians' backstories, as well as from building successful careers in the music business. My name is Nick O'Brien, and I'll be interviewing artists and industry experts and offering insights based on events that Wisconsin Music Ventures has produced. On occasion, I'll be joined by Allison M., the founder of Wisconsin Music Ventures, as she and I will dive into topics relevant to the music industry. So let's get down to business. Hey, hey, I am Nick O'Brien, and this is the Musician's Venture Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. This episode features a conversation with Billy Bronsted, who is the founder and frontman of the Northwoods Americana trio, Billy Bronsted and the Lute. And he also plays solo. Billy is a humble man from Wisconsin's Northwoods with a voice that fills the room and a smile that warms the heart. He's been a musician since his teenage years and has put out several studio albums with different bands over the course of his career. He's toured the country a couple of times and has made a name for himself in the Wisconsin string band scene, playing popular festivals like Mountaintop, Blue Ox, Mile of Music, and many more. Another aspect of Billy's life that this conversation focuses on is his past challenges with addiction to drugs and alcohol and getting sober while maintaining and growing his presence in the music industry. Now, there are a lot of people in the industry who struggle with addiction and sobriety, but not many talk about it openly. In this conversation, Billy really opens up about his story and his journey with addiction. Now, Billy and I have been friends for a while, so I've seen his music career evolve and his quality of life improve significantly over the years. And this conversation spotlights a lot of what I've been able to witness as a friend and a big supporter of Billy's. Over the course of our chat, we talk about his current focus on mindfulness and maintaining a sense of stillness internally so that he's focused and present as consistently as possible. We talk about the four most important influences on him becoming a musician, who are all within his family. We also chat about the first band he was a part of, and a funny story about that band's first stickers. And then he goes on to talk about all the other bands he was in between high school and now, a few of which included members who are now playing with other well-known Wisconsin bands like Feed the Dog and Tay and the Neighborly. He reflects on his experience learning how to front a band in his early 20s and the challenges he ran into with being a young, talented musician focused on the wrong parts of the musician lifestyle, especially drugs and alcohol. He explains when and why he decided to shift his focus to producing solo music after putting out several EPs and albums with his prior bands, and how the solo project turned into Billy Bronsted in the Lute. Billy talks openly about his experience with addiction to drugs and alcohol, and how going to rehab helped him kill the old version of himself, as he puts it. He reflects on how he had to get to rock bottom before he could learn the importance of loving himself enough to let go of his past, while still honoring it because it's what made him a better man. He talks about the business aspect of being a musician, and how it's his least favorite part. We zoom in on the song that you'll hear at the end of this interview, called Round This Way, and how and when he wrote the song and what it's about. He gives some helpful advice for other musicians about maintaining balance, which is some advice that he had to learn the hard way. He also shares his gratitude and his appreciation for the community of musicians he's found himself in throughout Wisconsin and Minnesota. He explains what resources and tools he's using to maintain balance in his life and a continual focus on becoming a better person, musician, 
and a band leader every day. He gives listeners of this interview some context for what to expect when you come to his live shows. And our conversation ends with Billy offering himself up as a source of support to anyone who is struggling, especially if it's with addiction or other mental health challenges. Billy Bronstead is an incredibly talented musician, but an even better person. He's one of the most genuine people I know, and I feel grateful to call him a friend. As a result of this conversation, I bet you'll come to understand why I feel that way. I hope that you enjoy this interview with Billy Bronstead. Billy Bronstead, my man. That's me. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for sitting down with me. Thanks for being on the Musician's Venture. I've been talking about doing this interview for a while, and it just so happened to work out this weekend as I was up in Wausau for the inaugural Scotty River Bluegrass Festival, in which you were all over the stage, man. You had your own set. You stood in with other bands. You even kind of created a new little duo, at least for the weekend, with you and Eric Huvenin from Feed the Dog. That was fun. But yeah, here we are, sitting at your kitchen table. Billy, it's been, I gotta say, like a pleasure to kind of see your music career blossom in these last five or six years of, of us knowing each other and being pretty close friends. So I've been really interested in having this conversation because I know you and I have talked a ton offline about your music career and the ups and downs of it. And it certainly seems to be on an upward trajectory right now. So I figure it's a good time to kind of sit down and pause and reflect on what it's been and what it is now, and then maybe look forward to where you'd like it to go. But to kind of set the table for the conversation, let's start with just what it is now. What is life like right now for you as a musician, as a person? What are you focused on? Like, what's top of your mind in this moment? Um, in regards to music specifically, I know I've been working a lot on our live show. I've been spending a lot of time doing the work in terms of building the pedal board and playing with effects so that we can express what we hear in the music, you know, a little more. And just really delving into that and then sort of the personal life stuff that permeates through everything. You know, there's been a lot of calmness and meditation that's been, been taking place as of late to like keep me centered and allow me to be present for those things that I am doing in the chaotic life of a musician. And is that working? You know, taking some time for mindfulness and stillness? Mm, yeah. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's the necessary thing to be done for me. I have a very active mind, so. Taking that time for yourself, what kind of benefits are you experiencing, given the fact that you've had a career up to this point that, there's been a good chunk of time that you've been making music and it's just been recently that you've been kind of setting aside time for yourself. So looking back on like the prior years of your career when you didn't do that and kind of comparing that to, you know, your experience now, having that a part of your life, what stands out is why that practice of mindfulness and stillness, how is that benefiting your life and your career? I spend more time in the pocket. And um, really that, by spending more time in the pocket, I just 
My relationships with others are better. My relationship with myself is better. My ability to have confidence in what I'm doing and, and believe in what I'm doing is more frequent. I you know I'm, I'm maturing at the same time, so some of it's that, but most of it is is really that, that mental work that um, allows me to feel good about what I'm doing and know that when I walk away from a situation, I don't walk away as much like realizing I was distracted and like wanting to like send like a I'm sorry text or something like that. It's more of like I walk away like kind of like a grin. Like I was listening to that person and I got to, to be there for that one. So Yeah, and you got that experience, you know, the last two times we've been together at Ice Dance, you know, Feed the Dogs Festival. And then this weekend at Scani's for the Bluegrass Festival there. Chance to kind of to talk with a lot of folks that you've known for a long time and some even new connections. And I don't know, just my observations, you seemed pretty damn present during the whole thing, mm -hmm. both weekends. seems like you're in a pocket, to use your word, of learning and observing and applying that type of stuff. And seems to be really benefiting your internal experience, but it's also leading to some pretty big results externally in your career. Like I said before, it definitely seems like your trajectory is on an upward motion right now for your place in the Wisconsin music scene, for your place in, you know, that Americana folk genre. So I would say from a distance, it is paying off your commitment to maintaining a, a pretty still internal experience. So congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> Let's rewind back to the beginning. Billy, you grew up in... Tomahawk, which is about 30 or 40 minutes north of Wausau, where we are right now. Home of the hatchets. Home of the hatchets, yeah. <laughs> and you, you started making music and putting it out there pretty early in your life as a teenager. But I'm curious, like, what was it like before that? When did you get that kind of calling to, to making music? When did you kind of feel that fire of, this is what I want to do with my life? I'm curious. Just take me back to the beginning. Yeah. What was that experience like? So there's two there's two people. Um, well, there's really four people that are the reason. Two of them are my parents, but the other two are my uncle Mark Johnson and my brother James Tagle. Uh, my brother James played, still plays, primarily heavy metal guitar, and I grew up. You know, my mom always talks, likes to tell a story. My brother would be cranking out metal riffs, riffs in the house, and I'd have my hands on the baby gate, like, headbanging, listening to him. So when I was 12-ish years old, he worked at a music store, Watson Music Center, and he helped pick out my first guitar. I started taking lessons with Mike Barons, um, a guitar teacher there, and started playing then and learning. And, it, and because of my influence my brother, I really... I love the rock and roll and the heavy metal stuff. So I started there, learned a lot of beginner songs with Mike, and then eventually moved over and got lessons with the guy in the room next door, Steve Schreiber. Steve taught me a couple scales and how to improvise. And then I sort of decided at some point in there that I didn't want to be taught anymore. And I just wanted to like run off and play. So I dropped out of lessons around then. And somewhere in there, I don't remember the timeline perfectly, but is when my uncle Mark moved in. He moved home. He was a physics professor at Duke in North Carolina, and he decided to leave that career and he moved back to Wisconsin and moved in with my parents and I for a while. And 
introduced me to blues music and surf rock and all this stuff. He came home with a kind of a cool collection of guitars that I have a couple of, but some are just gone now. He eventually sold some things to shift around and doesn't play really anymore. But I do have one piece of gear that is really cool to me is I have like a, an original 1963 Bender Showman blackface amp, which is a cool, it's just a collectible piece of music history that came from him. But he showed me, like I said, he showed me a lot of blues and surf rock. He would be down in the basement playing like Dire Straits and Pink Floyd and stuff like that. And that was really when I shifted. I really started to be introduced to more sonic things than just that heavy metal stuff. And I, and I drifted away from the heavy music and fell in love with this, you know, all these other sounds. And really, it kind of took hold there. Somewhere in there, I started strumming and, and singing. You know, we had a band. My my friend James Waters and I used to back him up. My uncle, we were like 13 years old, and he'd play drums and I'd play bass. My uncle would play guitar. We were called The Reusables, which is really funny. The, the band name came from the local grocery store had a water distribution I don't know what you call it, like a machine, you know, where you go in and take a gallon jug and fill it up. If you were bringing a jug back to be reused, they had this roll of stickers that have barcodes on them that just said reusable. And so, sorry, Nelson's County Market, but we stole a roll of those stickers and those were our band stickers. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah, actually on that, on that headstock of some of my guitars, covering up like the serial numbers of them there's still like some of those old barcode reusable stickers in it they still laugh we had like a drum head that we had written the reusables on besides like playing with my buddies in the like the band room of the high school that was like the first real like band and that wasn't for very long in tomahawk there was like a youth center the axiom building and there was some kids a few years older than me that were they were throwing concerts in there and that was where I first like got exposed to live music. That was where my connections with David Blessing and John Knipe. Well, we didn't. I didn't even really get to know them then. That that was when I first saw them because they're a few. They're a few years older than me. David actually sang in a metal band, and John played bass. And then I think he eventually switched to drums. I can't remember exactly, but they were called Valinar. There was another band called Farewell Cadence that was like uh, Silverstein, like emo pop kind of side of the coin and Valinar was more of a metal band and they would throw these shows there and I would go it's like 13 years old and I just it was the coolest thing ever and later I would eventually play with David and John Dave and I started our first band together called Saving Cities while I was still in high school and then when I got out of high school I made it like a year or two and then it kind of fizzled out and then we moved to Minneapolis together that was where the the idea for One Strong Army started we moved back to Wausau and worked on that band for a few years. And then the guys, that kind of started to shift and fizzle out. And the guys went off and started Feed the Dog. And then that was kind of when the Billy Bronstead solo idea really began. And then somewhere in there, Lightus in the Loop, the Bluegrass Trio, L-U-T-E, which was David's band name. It's like a tribute to like a mythology story of Linus being the son of Apollo. I think his father... Apollo created the lute for him to play or something like that. I can't remember the story though. With that, there's the Linus and the lute idea. 
And so if you go online, you'll see there's an EP on under my stuff that's called I Listen to Loot. And that was me playing banjo and singing with David and John. My two brothers from Tomahawk, who I grew up watching play at the local youth group center that let them throw rock and roll shows. <laughs> so tell me, like the first band being Saving Cities, that was you and John and David, right? No, 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 John. That was David and I and Jake Klesig and Tyler Mortimer, who are two other Northwoods guys. Jake hasn't been in a band for quite a few years now, and Tyler's down in Florida now. He's got a band called Oceans, and they're on tour right now, which is awesome. It's the first time I've seen him in a band since then. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. So it's, that's been really cool. But Yeah. Well, and then David went on to be the founding bass player of Feet the Dog. Yeah. And is now the bass player in Tay and the Neighborly. Yeah. So... He's got a good kind of aura about him, the bands that he gets into. It's all those Streetlight Manifesto records, man. Yeah, yeah. If you listen to him, that influence on him is very apparent in his playing. Yeah. And Saving Cities, I mean, it wasn't your typical, like, kind of first band in high school, because you guys put out some music. Like, you yeah. had a, a CD, and what was that whole experience like, just kind of getting into it and... Mm and getting serious about it enough to to put out music. It was so exciting back then. We were young, and music at that point in your life, at least in ours, was just such an escape. It just brought so much relief and excitement. Like, it just made life... It was like the first color TV or something, you know, in terms of, like, it just gave my life color. And... We recorded our album with our brother, Ryan Taylor, and Meryl. And Ryan is the hell of a guy. I love him so much. I don't get to see him enough. He now has five boys. So his music life has slowed substantially. Ryan recorded that record. We made it in Meryl, and it was an exciting time for all of us. And that was the first time I played the Mountaintop Festival was that band. We were practicing in Bob's basement, and Bob gave us a slot playing um, right before Roster McCabe, who was like our collective favorite band back then. If somehow any of them ever hear this, they need to put Live at the Caboose Volume 1 and 2 on Spotify because they're the best albums ever, and I can't find them anymore. You need to do that, guys. <laughs> anyway. So you guys put out music. You were gigging. It introduced you to, to Mountaintop Festival. And for listeners who are not familiar, Bob Wygant is who Billy was referencing. He's the lead organizer for that festival. And then how long after Saving Cities kind of fizzled out did OSA, One Strong Army, kind of start to shape and take form? So when Saving Cities fizzled out, David and I moved to Minneapolis to start something new. We got on our feet for a while and actually, we got a house together when we were out there. There was a band that existed in between for a short period of time called Coyote Sun. Okay. Um, and I didn't know about this. Yeah, it was um, this cat named Bo Baker. Um, this is awesome guy that we got to know from kicking around Minneapolis. We had a house together for like six months on like 35th and Bloomington. Six-month lease. We didn't renew it. After that experience, when Jake, the singer of Saving Cities, kind of stepped away from music, but the four of us recorded like some songs in that house and we back, used to back Bo up. I was playing drums at the time 
David was playing bass. That was kind of our Minneapolis chapter. And then after that kind of changed, Dave and I had gotten to play some music with Eric, who is now the drummer of Pete the Dog, and we loved his drumming. So we actually just decided to move to Wausau to start a van with Eric. And that is One Strong Army. You know, shortly thereafter, we we went into River Rock Studios with Kevin Israel and made our first EP, and then eventually made a full record. And then we even cut a second record that never got finished or released. But someday, I think that thing's going to see the light of day. We just needed a long break. My life is very chaotic. In hindsight, now I see drugs and alcohol. That's when they were really starting to ruin my life. How old were you at this point with the One Strong Army kind of chapter? Yeah, I was the tender age of 22, maybe. Okay. I know, like, there was one Strong Army show that was happening before I was 21. Sorry to anyone that hired us. Mm. He might have served me a drink. <laughs> Explain what Strong Army's sound and what was the inspiration behind the songs in that band. Honestly, it, David had shown me a lot of bands from the Minnesota scene back then. When I was a teen, I was listening to, like, like I said, Roster McKay was like one of our favorite bands, but I was listening to like Wookie Foot and John Land Payne and like a lot of these like bands that were blending like jam and reggae kind of funky stuff, you know. So like I loved that stuff back then. And like it still holds a place in, in my heart. I just I grew into something else. That was the sound, you know, the boom chucks of reggae and funky tunes, and then we would blend it with rock and roll and punk and trippy guitar solos. That sounds like when you really got into like learning how to front a band. Mm-hmm. That was. What was that experience like? I made all my mistakes then. Mm, like what? Yeah. Like what were those mistakes? Oh man, I mean tons of. I mean lots of experimentation. Lots of you know there was drugs and alcohol. A lot of those kinds of mistakes. There was expectation and some mistakes. There was health choices that made like i that was when i started learning like if you want to be a singer you have to take care of your instrument it would take me years to really reel that in i was just talking yesterday about like a show that one strong army once played at the source public house that thankfully no one was there for but i literally couldn't talk when we were like going to the show and instead of canceling the show i just had such a mentality of like we have to deliver like, I always felt that way, and I would like I never wanted to let anyone down or not meet expectations, and so I would do things like that. Like, no one in their right mind should ever play a show when their voice is injured, or like when they, you know, it's like, no, get some rest, buddy. Like, it's one day, but like, every day was like all or nothing for me, you know? So, a very ambitious young man that had a bit of a chip on his shoulder, too, you know? Where do you think that chip came from? <laughs> me yeah yeah i mean i you know i created it it came from me like a need to like prove yourself or mm-hmm. yeah yeah you know i was from a small town in northern wisconsin and i was like back then my perception was i'm not just gonna be some guy from up here like i'm gonna be you know more than this or whatever and or different i don't know i was just trying to be cool, I guess, you know? And yeah. What I thought was cool, you know, punk rock and all the things that I laugh at now, basically. Nah, I shouldn't say laugh at, but all the things that I kind of, that make me chuckle. And then One Strong Army started to 
kind of fizzle? What was what was the reasoning behind that? Feed the dog was taking off. Tyler's songs were awesome, and I was a mess. And the guys had an opportunity to work with a dude who was writing really good songs and a guy like Timmy who works his ass off on getting the band shows and just had generally been like in the music world and knew how it worked. I was like five years younger than my rhythm section, you know, and I had no idea how to be a leader. Although they had like done plenty of work themselves too, a lot of it fell on my shoulders and I just didn't know how to handle it. I was naturally talented, but like I was resting on my laurels and I was doing drugs and drinking and just like partying. Like I was obsessed with the wrong part of the music world, you know, and because I thought it was going to bring me more of what I was looking for. And instead it was destroying that. Mm. So that's the truth. And so that Feed the Dog record, that first album, Sheep, Man, they made that during that time, and, and like I was like heartbroken just because I had poured so much into the band. I didn't know how to let go of it, and they were making this, and I'll be honest, like there was a little bit of jealousy at first, and then when I heard the album, like I understood. I was like, oh, man, this is good. I mean, it's still one of my favorite albums to date. I still will turn it on and listen to it regularly. I even play songs off of it because I love it that much. Mm-hmm. You know, like it just went down as like one of the best records I've ever heard. Aaron Dusterhoff did a great job on it. Tyler wrote some awesome songs. Timmy Shreds of Fiddle and Dave and Eric are awesome together. Like it was just this like perfect storm. It was there and it happened and it taught me a lot of things too. You know? So what was the gap between One Stronger Army and the next project, which would have been Linus in the Loop. Mm-hmm. So One Star Army, you know, we started as a trio, and then John, who is from Tomahawk also, and played in some of those bands that I had mentioned earlier at the Axiom Building. And we have been out of the state for a few years, and when he, he kind of came back around, and we were like, we can use a rhythm guitar player, and so he played in One Strong Army for a while, and then when the Feed the Dog thing was taking off, the guys were doing that. John and I were like sitting over here and, you know, kind of looking at each other like, what do we do? That's when I picked up the banjo. That was one of the things I had acquired from my uncle was this banjo. So during that time, I was spending a lot of time at home just like teaching myself how to finger pick and things like that. So John started touting an acoustic guitar. And I started carrying the banjo around. And then when David wasn't busy with the dogs, you know, we would do these trio shows under the name Linus and the Lute. And I would be playing the banjo, John would be playing the guitar, you know, and Dave would come in on bass and we'd have a good time. But it wasn't, you know, as busy as we wanted it to be. And then that was kind of where David was busy with this and John and I were still kind of like over here wanting to start something, you know. Also, before Linus and the Lute, I had gone into the studio and recorded an album, This Bet of Mine. And that album was just essentially like every song I had ever written that didn't get used in any of bands, plus some stuff that got written like for the record. But most of it, it was like this like dump, you know, like I just dumped out all this, all the stuff that like had never been used. It was like, didn't want to waste these songs. I thought people should use some of them. And then Lies of the Luke cut this EP shortly after those records were actually released within months of each other. 
So at this point, you'd put out a Saving Cities EP or a full album? We actually put out an EP and an album. Okay. So an EP and an album. And then one Extraordinary put out an EP and an album. And an album. It had another one in the hopper, right? Yep. And then Linus in the Loop put out an EP. And I had just put out a full length album. And then you just put out this bed of mine. And you're, what, 24? Yeah. And what was the experience like your prior albums? They weren't like you, a solo album, but this bed of mine was solo album, just Billy Bronstead. What was the kind of inspiration behind that decision? I know you'd said it was just kind of a dump, but you didn't want to put it out as a band. You wanted to put it out as Billy Bronstein. Mm. What went into that decision? That was when I was like, I'm tired of trying to remarket and rebrand a new band every couple of years. I said, I'm just going to like be a leader now, you know? And that was when I was like, I'm just going to, I'm going to try to learn how to be just a solo artist, but also I still want to have a band and be in a band, and I, and I and I crave the connection of a band, and that's why ultimately it became Billy Bronstead and the Lute, and we just changed the spelling of the Lute, and then reworked the concept of what it was. But yeah, I made that decision. Honestly, I wanted to dump music out there, and I wanted to kind of like put the stake in the ground. Like I'm here to stay. I'm gonna keep making records. I'm gonna keep making music. But this is just my name. Like so. I'm just going to use my name now so that I don't have to feel like we have to redevelop this thing constantly. Maybe that was like my own impatience too, because it was like, maybe I could have just allowed like the bands to just be on a break. You know, it was very ambitious. That album was the first that I had heard of you. You know, we'd cross paths in Wausau. You're playing a lot at Malarkey's and Intermission and... I think we had formerly met at Jack Pine Jamboree mm-hmm. in 2017. I mean, it was you and John, just like you were saying, like he had his guitar and you had the banjo and you guys were just walking around camp to camp, picking, and mm-hmm. it was a great time. And, you, and then we developed a friendship and you, you gave me a copy of This Bed of Mine. You gave me a copy of the One Strong Army album. And I started listening and I was like, man, this guy is really good. And I think what he can deliver... It's a higher quality than what his life experience is like right now. Mm. You know, you just <laughs> it just seemed very advanced musically and, you know, no offense, but, you know, kind of just trying to keep it all together. Yeah. Oh, dude, none taken. Yeah. That is the, that is putting it lightly. <laughs> yeah. You're being really gentle with that. I was a rock. Cocaine booze, you know, like I would give it, give it. What is it? Like, is it going to change the way I feel? Like, is that's what I want? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, this, I mean, like, I was nightmare. Yeah, and let's zoom in on that for a minute. Yeah. Were the drugs and alcohol, like, covering up something? Was it a void that you were trying to fill? And if so, what was that void? Like, why do you think drugs and alcohol became such a big part of your life at that point? I struggled with self-worth. They would temporarily fill that hole within me until they didn't. And I just became addicted to that. And it really turned on me. You could ask anyone, you know, with addiction, like, it was all fun and games at first. And it was great at first, but like, then it it just sucks. You know, it sucks to wake up and like, be that type of needy. 
even when you're alone. Like I need to put something in me to even think about anything else. And it becomes like this weird selfish self-servicing thing that I am fortunate to have realized so early in my life. And we've talked a bit about this part of your life offline, but it seemed like it was a pretty scary phase of your life. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's there's even songs on those records, you know, where I'm sort of like, I would like write these songs, like making empty promises to myself. It's like when someone is like on Monday morning, like, I'm going to sober up. It was like, I'd write that like Monday morning, like, Time to get sober song, and by Friday you're drinking again. You know, it was kind of like that. And I was booked on prescription stimulants. I even had a, a prescription for a short while, and that was a nightmare. But, you know, Adderall and stuff like that. So there's even a song on, like, the One Strong Army record. It's all about the prescription drug industry. Some believe. It's called Some Believe. And, like, even back then, like, I was still, like, using and stuff, but, like, like I knew deep down that I disagreed with all this stuff. So there was a lot of dissonance for a long time there. Yeah. And how long were you having this experience where you kind of knew that you were addicted and that it wasn't actually serving you, but you thought that it was? Like, what was that period of time like where you were telling yourself that you needed to get sober, but you just weren't? Like, how long was that? And Man, the dial's a son of a bitch. And uh, I was in denial for a few years, and I never let myself truly tell myself, like, dude, you have a problem. I would reel it in for long enough to prove to myself that I could go do it again, you know? And I crashed and burned. COVID happened. And when COVID happened, man, I'd cleaned up. I will say that there was, like, quite a few good periods there where I had clean myself up, I still never realized fully to myself that what I am is an, an addict or I'm, I'm a very addictive personality. I have an immense amount of willpower, and I think that's instilled in me from my father. He's a, a Marine, and um, he has taught me to will myself through a lot of things in my life. So, like, I have this, like, willpower, but when you're an addict, it's like, no amount of willpower can beat it until you know what the problem is. And so I would like will myself away from things, but then eventually like there's this little ticker in the back of your mind that wants it, wants it and wants it. And it's never, it never stops thinking about it. And so I would always go back and then, yeah, so COVID happens. What happened then? Me, in my perception of the world, I was like, okay, I remember literally being like, okay, this is like, my generation is going through the Great Depression essentially. So to me, this whole thing is playing out. I literally believed that my dreams were destined to not come true. I bought a pickup truck from a friend and I just went to work for a while. And then that's when like, when I believed that I didn't get to be this person I thought I was, that's when it got bad. When I didn't allow myself to believe that there, that there was like going to be another day of music or something like that. I felt it deep down inside and I, and I tried to like work and there's a lot of tradesmen that I probably frustrated, you know, and there was a lot of like late for work days. It was just, I mean, it was so messy. And by the end of the year, I was, I was in hell and a friend of my brother's had gone to a rehab in Colorado 
and made some calls and got me in. And it went out there and I cleaned up. I got on the plane on December 12th, 2020. And I haven't drank alcohol or used hard drugs since then. And it's been a much better couple of years. It was the end of, or I came face to face with this version of myself that I didn't like. So I killed him. <laughs> that was when I killed the old. I truly believe that. What was rehab like? Man, well, amazing isn't the right word. Okay. <laughs> it did amazing things for me in the long run. Going to that rehab at that time, I think the state of Colorado was funding up to 30 days of treatment for pretty much anyone. So there was a lot of people coming in off the streets at that rehab. And so, I mean, I was, was sleeping in this house. There's 15 beds in this house. And there was people coming in off the streets left and right, you know, rotating in and out. This is Aurora, Colorado. And a man who made a lot of really great people. And then they started dying. Mm, from relapses? Yep. They would come in and they were addicted to fentanyl. You know, most of the cases that I heard, there was a couple people that were addicted to like other things like alcohol and cocaine. Alcohol withdrawals are crazy, scary. I saw people have alcohol seizures, you know, brutal. It was fucking brutal. And after those four months, I did, I did 60 days in a treatment center, and then I did 60 days in a sober living house. And, man, there was a guy that I loved very much. I've always made quick friends with certain people in life, and I really made quick friends with him. And we went through this whole journey together, man. We moved into the sober living house. And then... We started doing drugs again, and I caught him. We were living in the same room. I moved out of his room. Then this other kid moved into his room. I left town somewhere in there, kind of ran from that situation a little bit, and I was homesick. I came back to Wisconsin. And before I left, I had to replace the pads and rotors on my whole pickup truck to make it back to Wisconsin. I did it in the garage of that sober living house with this guy that had just moved in. And two weeks later, he dies on the floor of the house that we were living in and and my friend who I was really close with goes out uses a bunch and then ends up robbing some people and going to prison and I'm like I think like after that whole experience is when I realized like that this is life or death and that like being a drug addict is like choosing to use when you're an addict like me which by the way I just want to say this now I just want to plug this really quick for anyone that's listening that might be feeling like they're separate from me now because they do drugs. You're not. I'm a drug addict. You don't have to ever feel like because you're high around me or something. I'm still going to laugh when you tell drug humor. I'm still going to be like a part of this community no matter what. I've built myself up to coexist with you now. And don't ever put yourself on an island around me just because I don't. With that being said, it's life or death, man. It's life or death. And when you're using like that, you're choosing to die. That's the hardest part for me is when I see people choosing to die when they're doing it in a sad way, you know, like I used to. And it's just, that's the only way they can get by. So yeah, anyone out there that is going through it, you can pull me aside anytime. I get nothing but love and I do support you. So when you were in rehab and in the sober living house, you said it was like 120 days. Were you still feeling this connection to music or did you step away from music altogether? Was the music 
part of your life like during that time? I flew out there with a guitar. So while I was sobering up, it was the guy in the rehab with a guitar. You know, it was pretty funny sometimes, you know. <laughs> Were you writing? I was soothing a lot of people, and including myself. Music was a way of self-soothing because I had a lot of issues growing up. Addiction runs deeper than just me in terms of my family. I think more of my family is realizing it now, too. Mm. You know, which is and cool to see. So you were getting homesick, come back to Wisconsin, you're still sober. This would have been what, like mid-2021? Yep, it was April or May. <laughs> so I did I did my breaks in the garage of that sober house, and then I uh, found a topper, a truck topper, a marketplace, and I built a bed in the back of my truck. I was working for a carpenter out there at the time, a guy named Jeff. Sorry I left you, Jeff. One day I took a bunch of like wood, we, we tore out like a garage door on a house and we made it taller essentially so this guy could get his like high top van in and there was all this lumber from that and I took it all home in my truck that day. The next morning I came in and he like kind of whipped me like get in there and you know, get that work done boy kind of thing and I was struggling at the time and I had never told him I was in recovery because I was embarrassed, which was foolish. I should have just been honest with him. But I didn't tell him, and then when he said that, I reacted poorly to it, and I got my truck. I drove back to the house, and that was when I started fixing my truck, building a bed in the back of it, putting a topper on it. And I was like, I'm going to go hit the road for a while and try to you know, get back to who I am and live again and make my dreams kind of come true. It wasn't the most graceful at times when I got back. I still made a lot of mistakes when I came back from that, but they weren't all mistakes either. There's a lot of good. Let's just put it this way. I made less. Mm -hmm. Things were getting better. And I was starting to become more accountable for things. And I was starting to be a bigger rock, you know, and, and really just developing self more and more, you know. But there was a little bit of dissonance again. But it was a different kind now. Because now it was like I had started to kind of build up this identity of like drinking woohoo yeehaw music you know and i still like to party like that i just like i just can't drink and so it's like it's weird sometimes still even you know so i mean even the title track of the first record this bet of mine is like a story about me like getting drunk and like ending up in a ditch and it's a mostly true story besides you know the end of it is just more of a joke but it's actually like a, a shitty story of me like being too drunk to control myself and I thought it was funny, <laughs> but, you know, I still sing it now and I just tongue and cheek it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, you mentioned this during the last few shows that I've been to of yours. You'll say, you know, you kind of look at your life in two parts. There was before sobriety and after sobriety. And a lot of your songs kind of fall in line with that kind of categorization. And you're still able to sing and play the songs that you had written about your life before sobriety. And I think it's really admirable that you can still kind of reflect on those experiences that you wrote those songs about and have a relationship with your past self that doesn't leave you feeling like a failure or anything like mm -hmm. that. Explain that experience. Like, how are you able to do that? I have to accept every piece of myself. I can't pretend to be anyone else, you know? So can't close the door on the past. It's part of me. It's what made me able to have perspective 
and to grow into this person that I am now and to be a better man. And hopefully through this and me being open about it, there's some people out there that don't have to make the mistakes the way that I did. I'm definitely the epitome of someone who had to learn the hard way. I was beat down by myself. It was all self-induced. And people told me that, and I chose not to listen. It says even more, just like how important your inner dialogue is and what you believe about yourself. And really, like, you have to tune into that. You have to love yourself. And I never did until I stopped. And I do now. Yeah. You know, there's a guy that I... This is a shout out to Jared, <laughs> Pathfinders Recovery Center. I was being more sarcastic when I said it, but I still think about it because I know it makes him laugh. We were in the van once, and I was sitting in the passenger seat. He was driving this recovery center van, and it looked afflicted. I was like, you know, I'm a pretty cool guy. He still, whenever we talk, he brings it up. I was joking that day, but now, like, yeah, you know what? I'm a pretty cool guy. You are a pretty cool guy. <laughs> yeah. At this point, you know, it's like mid-2021. You're back in Wisconsin. You are working in the trades, building houses, things like that. And, you know, the itch to make music comes back. Take me through the process of kind of reestablishing yourself in the music world and, you know, putting together Billy Bronson and the Loot mm -hmm. and putting together an album and putting that record out. Mm. So I actually, I probably have to rewind a little bit to tell that. Okay. So, yeah, before we, we got into the recovery stuff, you know, I was talking about John and I being left in the dust of the one strong army thing and me, the dogs taking off and Linus and the loot's going on. So David's getting more and more busy. And so John and I, John grabs a, a cajon one day and starts messing with percussion. And I switched back to the guitar. I was just tired of the banjo. The banjo didn't feel like my instrument. I'm a guitar player. They're a great one, by the way. Thank you. A lot to learn, but thanks. And so I started doing that. John was playing the cajon. And then he actually, over time, built a full drum set. I mean, literally one piece at a time. He started with the cajon. And then he got this, like, inverted kick pedal thing. He got a snare drum one day. And he started, like, getting cymbals. And then we dug out, like, my old drum set out of storage and repainted it. Then eventually he grew into a full kit. And then a band started, like, surrounding us, you know. That's when Darian Waller started playing with us. Harold Mello and Jordan Miles joined the band at the time. And that was all while I'm going through still like struggling with this addiction stuff. And I don't even realize it. And these guys are like, you know, playing in my band. And I'm sure like getting frustrated at times with me and my behavior. And, and, and I don't really understand what's going on with me either. Well, deep down I do, but denial. Yeah. 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 We had been playing these songs and John and I had written a lot of that record, Rhythm Racket and Romance, on the spot in dives around Wisconsin. You know, it was like drinking beer from local breweries that we were playing at and like just like coming up with songs, playing some covers and making things up. And then, like I said, built the drum set up and a band eventually surrounded us. And then I crashed and burned. And then I came back and I was trying to like put things back together. And we played it a little bit as like the full lineup for a little while. The guys had moved on. That record came out, and when we put out Rhythm Racket and Romance, really I put it out because I came back and I said I need to close this chapter. 
And so I polished up a couple of vocal takes. If you listen to that album, in my opinion, I sound like shit. Mm. But like, I knew that the art was honest for the time. And so I put it out. Unlike Old Fool and like Honey, Where You Gone. And so many songs are there. Like, I'm just like gritty, gravelly. And I'm like just trying so much effort to like hit certain notes that like now are way more effortless. And if you see me play those songs live now, you like, you'll hear like my vocals are clean mm-hmm. and it's just a testament to like how unhealthy I was. So I, anyway, came back, I finished a couple of vocal takes, put the record out, struggled to like get the band back to being what it was. And then finally, like in the last so many months now, we are a three piece and we're going to stay that way until it makes sense or the right person comes along. And we're going to have people join us on stage. You know, we have that perfect fourth slot now where it's like, yeah, come on up. Perfect room for a guest now. Yeah, I feel like that is pretty much all of it. Yeah. There's a lot of songs that have come out of me since getting sober. So we're going to collect a record here one of these days. And the new me will have an album out. (laughs) Yeah. So let's zoom in on one of those songs from Rhythm, Racket, and Romance. Yeah. Which is the latest work you put out. That album was released in, what, late 2021? Or was it 2022? 22. 22? Mm-hmm. So you want to zoom in on Round This Way? Sure, yeah. Yeah, Round This Way. In 2019, I went on tour. Sorry, no, it was 2020. Went on tour with Listening Party, band from Milwaukee. We did a run to Colorado, New Mexico, and Texas. Had some stops in Kansas and stuff too. But we were in an Airbnb in Colorado Springs when, and I just found this recording the other day. I had some piece written out that was sort of like John Prine influenced. And actually the original first verse of the song isn't even in it anymore. It was super trippy to hear. But anyway, I I pulled out this piece that I'd been working on, put it on the table with the LP boys in this Airbnb in Colorado Springs. And we scribbled out around this way together. And although when I needed to close the door on making that album, I didn't get to get a chance to get together with them to get them on the record. I wish I could have, but I was not able to. So someday I'd like to cut a version with them. Yeah, that tour was a lot of fun. And those guys helped me write that too. And what's the song about? Yeah, the song is about, there's a little bit of self-dialogue in the beginning there. I've been rough, I've been rude. I think that a lot of people deal with realizing that they were shitty at a certain point or something. So there's that, but then it also shifts forward into saying things about the road, talking about the inspiration and the beauty of the scenery in Colorado, sunshine on the mountain rolling down the front range, you know, to the quiet in Salina, which I think a lot of people probably think I'm talking about Salida, Colorado, but it's actually Salina, Kansas. We just, just had a really fun Sunday there. So that's a little tribute to Matt Stewart and the Vu out in Salina, Kansas. And then uh, the second verse is like talking about building a new life. I'll build the frame you decorate, see the picture that you painted. So it's it's really about all those things at once. Everything that was shifting through our consciousness at the time. But mostly the hooks are just that inspiration and that, that beauty of the, the life out on the road in, in Colorado. Yeah, and so at this point now you put out a pretty good collection of music through four different kind of iterations of your music career. You're pretty accomplished when it comes to that, you know, like writing an album, putting it all together, getting it recorded, 
Do you feel that way? You know, musicians who are kind of still on their way up don't have quite as much experience as you do in that realm of the industry. What's your take on that? Like, is it wild to look back and kind of see where you are right now in relation to where you want to be and look back and say, well, you know, I have put out, you know, five or six pieces of work, you know, and what, three full-length albums, a few other EPs, just how did you learn all that stuff? The business side of the music industry and the importance of putting out music and going on tours and booking shows and stuff like that. Like, you've done a lot of that. You know, don't take that for granted. What have you learned about the business side and separate from the creative side? That it's my least favorite part. Yeah. I know that. And I think most of us can agree. We don't like being businessmen. We like being creative. We got into music because it moves us and makes us feel and we have a lot of fun. Saying we, because I think a lot of people would agree with me, but there's probably some, I'm going to call them weirdos out there that just love sending those emails. I, that's a joke. I don't think they are. <laughs> you know, we're in such a crazy time. The information age is just booming so fast. So there's this ability for us to teach ourselves things and for us also to teach others too, you know. So like time on the internet, you know, anyone that doesn't, you know, some research, like there's lots of resources out there to tell you how to get connected in that, you know, and there's a lot of, man, there's a lot of musicians now. There's a lot of people that are getting good at promoting and marketing themselves. I'm still not the best set for promotion and marketing. I'm still not even the best at like being responsive to emails. I'm still a work in progress, but I have at times put a lot of effort in, but that addictive personality has even affected that at times I have, all right, mission statement is here, right? We want to play shows. We want to do this. All right, cool. So I go to work on it days and days, 12 hours a day at the computer, right? Chugging coffee. And then the next thing I know, I'm wondering why, like, I'm so tense and I haven't been getting exercise. And all of a sudden, you know, like last year, man, I put out the record and then I was like, I was just trying so hard to promote it and work on it that like I crashed and burned even sober. Like I was just drinking a bunch of coffee and I actually had like an acid reflux flare up that destroyed my voice and I couldn't talk for a month. I actually had to cancel a bunch of shit because of it, you know? So like what I'm learning is balance is everything, even in the business realm. Like, you can try too hard, <laughs> and you can work too hard, you know, and it will have an adverse effect on you. Again, I have learned the hard way so many times. So if you're out there and you're working, and you're sending a few emails, and you're getting a few gigs booked, and maybe you see someone with an intense tour schedule, and you feel envy, remember that, like, there's always a trade-off. You know, if you see someone that's getting something, they might be missing something else, you know? So just remind yourself that you're good enough and what you're doing is probably good enough, you know? And don't spend 12 hours a day at your computer. It will fuck you up. <laughs> yeah. Well, also too, like, you know, you said you've learned a lot about this from, you know, just going on the internet, figuring it out. But you've also come up in this community of musicians in Wisconsin from this, like, you know, kind of string band, bluegrass, Americana genre, these relationships that you've formed, you know, just gigging with these other musicians and going to festivals and things like that. And I was able to kind of witness that this weekend at Scotty River. There's a really solid foundation of relationships built there that safe to say you've probably taken a lot from, you know, gained a lot from inspiration and 
guidance and kind of mentorship. Talking about that experience of just like coming up with all these other musicians, you know, you talked about Eric and David, they went on to form Feed the Dog, and now David's moved on to Tay and Neighborly. But, you know, Eric's, you know, we've talked about this, one of the best, if not the best drummer in the state. But you've rubbed shoulders and shared hugs with so many other amazing musicians in the state. You know, what can you say about that? What have you gained from that experience, that being part of that community? I think seeing other people thrive has allowed me to rest assured that things are going to be okay for me too. And that I appreciate them so much. And I think without seeing them succeed and do the things that they have done, you know, I could have never learned to be a little more gentle with myself. And honestly, man, I'm just at this like point where I'm just like, I could really learn so much from anyone. And a lot of these guys, like I'm just around them now. And I'm like, man, you're awesome. Like, you know, like I started playing a little bit with Augie as recently from the Armchair Boogie. And we did a, like a duo show in Madison. And and then we joined, you know, in on each other's sets this weekend um, for the Armchair and for the, the, the Billy and the Lute set. And man, he's just like, he's awesome. He's put in the work. He knows how to play the freaking banjo, man. And he's a good dude. He's not the only one, you know. Like I said earlier, I just had a chip on my shoulder when I was younger. And now, like, I've been humbled enough and I'm just genuinely connecting with people and it feels it feels good to not be that person i think i'm just still kind of riding that high and these people i get to connect with now i actually get to listen to them and watch them and observe them they're teaching me things even when they don't know they are i'm just really grateful i'm really grateful to be alive and i'm really grateful to be a part of such a loving and welcoming and kind community the greater Wisconsin, Minnesota scene is a gentle place full of lovely people that I'm honored to, to spend my time with. Yeah. And like I said before, like getting to witness that, you know, firsthand this weekend at Scarney River, like as an individual musician, I think you were on stage more than anyone else. Augie mm. played with every band on Friday. Did it? Mm-hmm. Okay. But you hopped up with armchair. Not that it's a right. Contest. It's not a contest. But <laughs> I'm just saying, like where you're at in this scene. I mean, you jumped up on stage with Adam Grohl and and the armchair guys for. Uh, gosh, what did they call that? Adam and the Boogie. Adam and the Boogie. Yeah, yeah and sang, awesome. sang a verse there, and you jumped in with Eric when Darian wasn't feeling up to par. You jumped in with a random set of musicians to kick off things on Saturday with a band called Alcoholics. <laughs> yeah, which is hilarious. It's kind of ironic. Yeah, I mean, you've been really welcomed in and from my perspective, like, started to become this adored personality in the Wisconsin bluegrass scene. I think it's paying off, you know, like your commitment to yourself and just wanting to connect with people genuinely and authentically and probably starting to see that at your core like you are this like super lovable dude and you happen to be a very very talented musician and people recognize that man i'm a lucky guy it's really a testament to them too adam and those guys in orange chair you know and really i mean anyone that was on that bill the dig deep guys the dig deep guys have really become i just feel so I feel like I have good friends now, you know, 
And they have helped with that. They've been supportive. They've seen me go through some ups and downs. I mean, Cockroach, the song that's on my record that I did with them, is about being drunk. It's like, we still like jump up and do it live. And like, everyone has accepted me now. Maybe not everyone. A few of the guys have accepted me now. <laughs> and it just feels good. And it's really like I was, where I started with this is it's a testament to their character and how good of people. Anna Grohl, the armchair boogie guys, dig deep. You know, everyone on that festival, man, just such good people. But they can take a guy like me and we feel good. Let me say that. Yeah. I want to zoom in on like what tactics, what practices you're following right now to keep yourself balanced. As you mentioned, that's what you've learned. It's all about balance. So in your personal life, in your inward facing life, like what are you leaning on right now? to kind of help keep that balance. Anything that you would recommend to other musicians or just other people in a similar situation where you're in a, a profession that can be rather chaotic, you know, out and about all the time, the creative pressure that comes with that, that kind of sometimes collides with this self-doubt while also having, you know, the need to have confidence and a little bit of an ego, you know, to be respected in this industry. What are you leaning on personally to get you there? And then we'll kind of take it to like in your craft, you know, in your, your talent, what are you focusing on? What are you trying to shape through that? But let's start with the personal side. Mm. Are there certain routines or yeah. regimen that you're kind of like a daily subscribe to? A daily meditation. Why have a daily stoic journal? Not the journal, sorry. Just the daily stoic. Right now, that one's been great. I still poke in and out and read the daily reflections from AA sometimes too, but the stoicism stuff is really very helping because I had, I worked recovery and I feel like right now I don't want it to always be about that, you know, but I do need the reminders. I don't want or need them every single day. Mm -hmm. And so what are you learning through stoicism that's helping you not only in your life, but also in your music career? Just a general breaking down of reactiveness and understanding what I'm in control of and just like kind of allowing myself to trust the universe. I don't need answers. You know, I believe that they'll come and living in the moments, trying to really pull myself into the present moment when I feel my mind drifting. That one's the biggest one right now. And then understanding that whole narcissism and, and empathy spectrum trying to scoot towards the empathetic side instead of the prior. Mm -hmm. And then musically, you know, we've talked a little bit, actually we've talked a lot offline, but you know, what are you focusing on right now in terms of honing in your craft, the live performances, the songwriting, guitar playing, what are you focused on there? Couple components. The Billy Bradson and the Lude show has songs and has like a thing that's become developed so now i'm like working on effects and the live performance of that and how to like make that better and then at home i'm like brushing up on old timey fiddle tunes and stuff and like practicing flat picking guitar and just trying to grow like my playing into more and really breaking myself down and humbling myself back down and trying to like learn some fundamentals that like I think I decided and chose to skip when I was like I don't need guitar lessons anymore I know enough when 
you know, all I knew was the minor pentatonic scale, which anyone that plays knows you don't need it so far with that before you're like craving something else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so really, really been like diving into the notes, more and more notes in between the ones that I had mapped out on the guitar. My ears more trained now and playing with fiddle tunes. Yeah, yeah. So what's to come? What do listeners have to look forward to with Billy Bronstead and Billy Bronstead and the Lute? You're booking right now. Want to have a pretty big 2023. You're right. Have some tour opportunities. I think you've said you're writing some new stuff. I had made a statement last year that I was going to release three albums, and then I injured my voice and was able to not deliver the second two. One was going to be a bunch of unreleased OSA stuff, which I still want to go in and finish. So that may come out one of these days. That's from the past. And then one was going to be like kind of just like an acoustic EP of some of the newer songs. So I do want to execute that stuff. I want to say that hopefully the acoustic EP does get out this year and that one of these days that OSA catalog will get dropped. Mm-hmm. And people that remember that that time and that era can enjoy it again. Yeah. And if listeners have not seen a Billy Bronstead show before, give them a tease. What can they expect coming out to a Billy Bronstead show? They can expect me to be there. <laughs> that's, that's a good place to start. Yeah. They can expect that I will be honest. And depending on the venue, you know, if it's a quiet room, you'll be able to connect with me more intimately and I'll be able to tell you and give you context. If you come to see me in a bar where everyone's talking, which happens a lot up here in the Northwoods, you're probably not going to connect with me. You're just going to hear me and I'm just going to sing some songs and I'm not going to try to like make myself the center of attention, which I'm totally fine with. I'm really totally fine with playing to any room. And if you come to a Billy Bronson and the Lute show, we're probably on a stage of some kind and we're going to try to really express ourselves sonically and push the limits of the genre and explore and jam and, and have a lot of fun with our instruments and I will give context for some of the songs, and sometimes we'll just rock out, man. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, depending on where and when, you can expect a lot of different things. Yeah. But number one is that I will be there. Yeah, you will be there, smiling. <laughs> Anything else in terms of your journey or the music industry as a whole that you want to use this platform to talk about before I drop the last question on you? Yeah. This isn't forever, is I think what I just really want to say here. If you're a musician and you're listening to this, or if even you're a listener, try to remember that every moment that you have with people isn't forever. And that when you're like playing music with people, that it isn't going to be forever. And that when you're experiencing a good moment, take it in because like that person could not make it home that night or a lot of things can happen. And so if you got something good, cherish it. It's great advice. So the last question for the folks that are listening, on top of all the other great stuff they've learned from you, about you, and just advice that you have to share, what's the most important thing that you want listeners to know about Billy Bronstead, the person, the musician, the band? What do you want them to know? I guess I just want them to know that, especially if addiction and mental health is an issue, that I'm someone that they can talk to and that they can open up to. And if I am able to give them time and my focus and my energy, that I can hopefully love them more than they can themselves in that moment. And I can be a shoulder. I support you and that I believe that 
if you're coming to me in that situation that you're probably having a pretty tough time and that it will get better and things will turn around. And I'm an example and a testament to say that people change and people not only can change, but will if they put their mind to it. And I love you guys. Listeners, I can confirm that. Like I've known Billy for quite a few years now. I've seen both versions of this man. And while I genuinely loved the past version of you, what's at your core is that I think where I was connecting to. And that core is a lot more vibrant now, you know, without the drugs and the alcohol. And I'm, I'm really enjoying seeing you kind of come into who you are meant to be. He is a very, very lovable man. And he, I can confirm when he said that he has a way of making friends with people very quickly. And I think that's why you and I are such good friends, because we both have a little bit of that going on and not scared to get deep and vulnerable. So when he puts himself out there, listeners, to offer that helping hand, that shoulder to kind of lean on, like he's being serious, you know, take him up on that offer. I'm sure he'd love to meet you. So Billy, yeah, this has been great. Appreciate you sharing this with us. Where can folks find you online? BillyBronsted.com, and that is S-T-E-D, B-R-O-N-S-T-E-D. BillyBronsted.com, at BillyBronsted, at most of the socials. There's surely not anyone else with my name, so I got lucky. Pretty accessible and pretty Googleable. Yeah, so that's me. <laughs> yeah. And like I said, you got a pretty good lineup of shows already scheduled in 2023, and more coming on the books. So if you see Billy Bronsted coming through your area, Highly recommend you go and check it out and introducing yourself. Billy, thanks for sitting down and, and sharing your story with me. Yeah, brother. Thanks for having me. Much love.
Thanks for listening to the Musician's Venture Podcast. Please leave ratings and reviews from wherever you're listening from. Check us out online at themusiciansventure.com for more information on what we have happening, to find past episodes, and ways to get in touch with us. Find us on social media at The Musician's Venture on Facebook and Instagram, and at Musician Venture on Twitter. Like and follow us on all those platforms, and hey, while you're there, engage with and share our content with your friends. The Musician's Venture Podcast is hosted by me, Nick O'Brien, with guest host appearances from Allison M. The podcast is produced by Shannon Coulard, with theme music by Mike Neumeyer. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>